They say there are three sides to every story. Your side, my side, and the truth. But when one of us is dead, can the truth ever really be known? We'll never know with complete certainty what happened in the home of Jim and Evelyn Peterson on that fateful day in August of 1967. But we do have one side of the story. Days after the family was slaughtered, Victor Ernest Hoffman confessed to committing one of the worst random mass murders in Canadian history. We have that confession. This is the Shell Lake Massacre. You're listening to Episode 5, The Confession. I'm your host, Brittany Cafay. This episode contains audio recreations of written and recorded statements made to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police by Victor Ernest Hoffman. The depictions of violence may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. The sun hadn't yet risen when Victor Hoffman abruptly awoke at 3 in the morning on August 15, 1967. He got out of bed, got dressed, and then, as the Hoffman farmhouse had no indoor plumbing, he went outside to urinate. Victor returned to the house and laid on the couch for a while, but he was unsettled. For the next two hours, he meandered about the home and yard of his family farm near Leask, Saskatchewan. He went to the garage and tinkered on an engine he had been fixing, but he tired of the task quickly. He saw one of the family dogs in the garage and contemplated killing it, but resisted the urge. Instead, he decided to go for a drive. Victor filled his grey 1950 Plymouth with gasoline from the farm's fuel tank and drove off, his only companion being the 22 caliber Browning Pump Action Repeater Rifle that he had loaded with bullets before placing it into the front seat. As he drove off into the dark, he didn't have a specific destination in mind. He first ventured out onto the highway, then down some back roads, and he eventually found himself back on the blacktop. Once he had hit the highway again, he just kept driving, growing closer and closer to the small farming community of Shell Lake. Hoffman described that morning in his confession to the police. After it got about daylight, the sun was just starting to come up. I saw that house on the left-hand side of the road, a gate there, and I slowed down to it. And I just drove in there and just started shooting there. Victor drove down the driveway of the Peterson home, stopping to open two closed gates along the dirt road and brought his car to a stop in front of the small white farmhouse that Jim, Evelyn, and eight of their children called home. He got out of his vehicle, gun in hand, headed toward the house, and opened the unlocked front door. Many of the details that Victor included in his confession to police are incredibly graphic and may be difficult to hear. Please listen with care. Walked in the house, 
this here guy, he was sitting on the bed, and he says, Who is it? And he kept on saying that, and when he saw the gun, well, he jumped up on the bed and I shot him. He said, hey, don't shoot me, I don't want to die. I shot him. He jumped off the bed and kept coming at me and grabbing me right by the neck here. He was trying to get me, but he was shot and I kept on shooting him with the gun until it was empty. And when I shot the last shell into him, he fell down. He finally hit the floor. Jim Peterson had fought fiercely to defend himself and his family. He had pushed Hoffman almost all the way out of the house, but it hadn't been enough. He was now on all fours, just inside the front door of his own home, dying. My bullets were making him weaker. He almost had me too. I wish he would've. It would've just been attempted murder then. Victor went back to his vehicle. He had every opportunity to get back in the car and drive away. Instead, he reloaded his weapon. He went back into the home and shot Jim again, this time killing him. Then, he began slaughtering the children. There was two girls awake. They screamed at me, Don't shoot me, I don't want to die, we don't want to die, they said. And they just ducked underneath the covers and I went there and shot them. My head was really spinning. Then, because I had already committed murder, I kept on shooting. No sense stopping now. Evelyn, who had been in the bedroom, had climbed out the window with baby Larry in an attempt to escape. Victor followed her outside. I heard her come out the window and I went round the other side of the house, around this way. And I think she saw me and she said, don't murder me. I did. I shot her in the chin. She fell down on the ground and I shot her again in the head. She had a baby. I didn't shoot the baby yet, and I didn't want to shoot it. So I went back into the house and finished off the rest of the girls. They were still screaming, making funny noises. They weren't completely dead yet. The bullet in the head just didn't want to kill them. One by one, Victor killed the remaining Peterson children. All but one. He left four-year-old Phyllis alive. He claimed that he let her live because she had been hiding under the covers, hadn't seen his face, and therefore wouldn't be able to identify him. But that explanation doesn't make much sense when you consider the fate of one-year-old Larry, who wasn't even old enough to speak at the time. Victor refers to the little boy as it. I went back out there at the last and I finished it off. I didn't want to shoot it. I hated myself for shooting it. I didn't want it to suffer. I didn't want to think nobody would find it for three or four days and it would starve. He shot the infant in the head. 
Victor spent the next half hour searching the home and yard for cartridge casings. He knew the police would be able to use them to identify the murder weapon and wanted to cover his tracks as best as he could. He shook out the blankets on the beds containing the mutilated bodies of the Peterson children and covered them back up once he had retrieved the evidence he was looking for. I started collecting them. I collected 17 of them. I counted them right there in the house on the sewing machine. I figured there had to be some more missing, and I looked and looked and looked and couldn't find no more. He put the 17 shell casings into the right pocket of his suede jacket, hoping he had found enough to throw the police off of his trail. At about 6.30 in the morning, Victor got back into his car and drove off, leaving the Peterson farm. I drove home. I felt real sick. I was just thinking I'd have to shoot myself, but I didn't know where to shoot myself, where I'd die quick. I saw how they died. They died so hard, and they didn't want to die. I don't know where my heart is even. It's here, isn't it? During the recorded interview, Victor was asked if he had ever had the urge to do something like this before. No, just those few minutes there. It, it just popped into my mind, just like that. Do you think I could get rid of it? No, sir, I just went and done it anyway. I don't know what got into me. Just before the tape recorder was turned off, police asked Victor if there was anything else he would like to say. He thought to himself for a moment, and then said quietly, Just that I know that I'm sick in the head, and that's all. But I can never kill again. I know that. We may never know the real truth of what happened within the walls of that small white farmhouse near Shell Lake that morning. But the details of the horror that Victor Ernest Hoffman left in his wake will never be forgotten. Victor had murdered James and Evelyn Peterson and seven of their children on August 15, 1967. On August 19, just hours after his victims were buried, he was arrested without incident by the RCMP at his family's farm. Two days later, on August 21st, Kathy saw the man who had killed nearly her entire family in person for the first and last time. Victor appeared in court and was formally charged with capital murder in the death of James Peterson. They had a hearing for him in Battleford and I, re I went to that because I wanted to see the guy and he just wasn't there. Like there was something missing. He didn't think he had done anything. And I remember thinking at the time that it's a good thing my dad wasn't there because he's, the guy wouldn't have made it to a court case. My father would have been the one in jail. In the days that had followed the murder, many conversations in Shell Lake and across the entire nation were full of conjecture about what kind of monster could have possibly committed this horrific massacre. And here he stood, 
He was no monster. He was just a man. That realization was a shock to Kathy. I just felt like I wanted to see what kind of person would do something like that. And it was just a plain ordinary person. That was the only court appearance that Kathy attended. She never saw Hoffman in person again. After his court appearance, Victor was taken to Saskatoon and underwent a psychiatric examination at the University of Saskatchewan. In just a matter of days, he was deemed fit to stand trial. A two-day preliminary hearing was held at the Court of Queen's Bench in Battleford on October 24th and 25th, 1967. It was during this hearing that Crown Prosecutor Serge Kuyaba asked to amend the original charge against Victor. He was now facing two counts of non-capital murder in the deaths of James and Evelyn Peterson. A charge of non-capital murder meant that the death penalty, which would only be abolished in Canada years later, would not be on the table if Victor was found guilty of the crime. Defense attorney Ted Noble had been appointed to act as counsel for Hoffman. Victor entered a plea of not guilty, and the defense would argue that he was legally insane at the time of the crime and should therefore be found not guilty by reason of insanity. I asked Lisa Daly, the executive director of the Treatment Advocacy Center, exactly what not guilty by reason of insanity means. I'm an attorney and basically one of the things that you learn when, you, when you're learning about criminal law is that a criminal act requires two elements. It requires what they call an actus reus, which is the bad act. So the thing that you did that would be considered a violation of the law um, and mens rea, which is the guilty mental state. So that's where the insanity defense would come in. If you're saying that a person committed an act, but they didn't have the mental state that they would have had to have for you to consider that person to have committed a crime, that is exactly where that determination needs to be made in the legal system in terms of whether somebody is held accountable as somebody who perpetrated a crime or they need to be treated as somebody who committed an act act that would be a crime if they had had the mental state to make them guilty of committing a crime. In Canada, like at the time of this crime, the standard would have been the monoton rule. And what that basically means is you could be found not guilty by reason of insanity if at the time you you know, you have a mental illness that caused you to act in this way. And it had to have been a situation where you either didn't understand the nature and quality of what you were doing, or you were unable to appreciate the criminality of what you were doing. Following the initial two-day hearing, the presiding judge deemed that there was indeed sufficient evidence to put the accused on trial. On January 8th, 1968, the trial of Victor Hoffman opened in the Court of Queen's Bench in Battleford. A jury of 12 had been selected who would determine Victor's fate. By this time, Kathy and her husband Lee had returned to British Columbia, taking Kathy's four-year-old sister Phyllis with them. They still didn't have a phone, but Kathy was able to count on family members to keep her up to date on the court proceedings. Lee's mother could call, like our neighbor and our landlord had a phone. People could phone there and we could, she would run down and tell me I had a phone call. I think Lee's dad spent a lot of time at the trials and what have you. 
So they always knew what was going on. Along with Kathy's father-in-law, many friends and neighbors of the Peterson family made a point to attend each of Victor Hoffman's court appearances, as well as the trial. Every single time Victor was in court, Marjorie Seminar and her husband Alvin, who had lived right across the highway from the Petersons, were also there. Marjorie still recalls how surprised she felt when she first saw Victor in person. His actions against the Petersons had been horrific, but there was nothing about his outward appearance that hinted at the violence that he was capable of. He didn't look like he'd be a, a killer. He no. looked like an ordinary person. He just looked like a regular farmer. Throughout the trial, Victor sat in the prisoner's box with a vacant expression on his face. He seemed to show no emotion or remorse as the shocking details of the crime he was accused of were recounted. Sitting in court and hearing the gruesome details of how her friends and neighbors had met their death was difficult for Marjorie. But one moment still stands out in her mind to this day. The moment she realized just how close her own family had come to death. He said the closer he got to this area, he said he was coming around the, the, the lake yeah. there. Yeah. And he said he had this urge he had to stop. And he was, he was going a little bit too fast to stop him to our place. And uh, so he went to the next driveway and went into yes. Peterson's. Victor had attempted to stop at the seminar home, but he had been going too fast and had missed the approach. Rather than turning around and heading back to the home where Alvin, Marjorie, and their children had lain sleeping, he took the next approach and went to the Peterson home instead. More proof that this crime had indeed been completely, utterly, horrifyingly random. Ron Shorevoice, who was a reporter for CFQC at the time, vividly recalls when the only indication as to why Victor had committed these murders came out through an outburst in the courtroom. One part of the uh, proceeding did throw us all for a loop. He, while his father testified and was leaving the stand, Hoffman got up and said, Dad, did you get the diamonds or something to that effect? What he meant by that was the devil had promised him a bag of diamonds. If he killed the family. We didn't know that until later, but that RCMP explained that to us. The trial of Victor Ernest Hoffman lasted only four days. Multiple police officers who had been on the scene and later investigated the crime were called to the stand, as well as psychiatrists who had evaluated Victor's mental state, including Dr. Abram Hoffer, whose testimony was vital for the defense. On January 11, 1968, the prosecution and defense delivered their closing arguments and the jury was sent off to determine a verdict. There was no doubt that Victor had committed the crime. The only question was whether he had been sane or insane 
when Jim and Evelyn Peterson, along with seven of their children, were brutally murdered. The jury deliberated for less than three and a half hours before making their decision. Victor Ernest Hoffman was not guilty by reason of insanity. You've been listening to The Shell Lake Massacre, a Rolko Radio production. This show was researched, written, produced, and hosted by me, Brittany Caffey. Victor Hoffman was voiced by Andrew Taylor. Supervising producers, Murray Wood and Sarah Mills. Story consultant, Craig Siliphant. Production support from Dallas Dole. Graphic design by Jennifer Losey with Rolko Creative Strategies. Special thanks to Aaron McNutt and John Gormley.